cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, you're with me, your host, Kingsley Kipuri, for the next hour. It's always such a pleasure to be able to spend time with you and chat to you. I'm not joined by my usual comrade, Greg Nicholson. He can't make it to the studio today. He's on the streets of Witz and Bramfontein, which, unless you're living under a rock, have been following and, and seeing the the sites that have really got the, the nation talking. The nation stopped and went wondering, what, what do we do now? What's next? Um, where's the leadership from the universities? Where's the leadership from the students? Where's the leadership from our national leaders and what, and what's going to happen next? So Greg is live reporting from there. Not live reporting. I'm lying. He's live covering that and he'll, and he'll be sure to send through pictures on Twitter and, 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 and write stories and publish the excellent footage that he's been recording on there. So it's just me. And of course you and your comments on Twitter at DM shows that day. Um, and some people sending through emails on dmshowsday at gmail.com. That's really great to get input on, on topics you'd like us to cover, feedback on topics we've already covered, and any feedback at all, whether technical or otherwise. So if you listen to a podcast, you're not happy with the sound quality or anything else, please send us through and we, we're committed to really making sure that the, we're bringing the best quality information and best quality news to you. So please, 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 feedback is much appreciated. And now with no further ado, uh, to introduce my guest who I'm so honored and and, and excited to be able to chat to. Um, I'm joined in the studio by Lee Ann Naidu, um, who's currently a PhD student at WITS, uh, the School of Education. Um, she's also an Olympic, a former Olympic beach volleyball player, should I say? Um, and also an activist who has recently, as last week, was on a boat and, and, and had an interaction, shall we say, with the, with the Israeli, uh, military and the Israeli Navy. And I don't want to say much, Leanne, because I want you to be able to, to speak for yourself. Leanne, how are you? It's a very tense time in South Africa, as your listeners know. Um, and I actually said leaving to be on the women's boat to Gaza was hard because two weeks ago the student protests had already begun. Um, so I've returned and it seems that things have escalated, um, captured the imagination of everyone and also bringing people out of their shells, speaking sometimes when... One can get a bit um, scared by what you hear oh, yeah. in terms of the comments, but oh, at yeah. least we're talking. Um, so it's a, both a scary and exciting time to be in South Africa at the moment. You got back on Friday. I did. What's it like being on home soil again? How, how, how are you? Well, it was firstly, it was fantastic to arrive okay. back um, to comrades, friends, strangers, people who had been watching and sending solidarity and support to the women's mission, um, the flotilla, to try and break the illegal blockade of uh, Gaza. Um, so it was wonderful to arrive back to that and also to my seven-year-old. I always have thoughts of my father off and my mother off doing political things. I was born in 76. Mm. Um, so, you know, Quite that was a, a, yeah, it was a, a hell of a time. My, my father's a teacher and was very involved in student activism mm. um, and also in the anti-apartheid movement. So I keep thinking, am I just repeating what my father did by not being present for me because he was present for a bigger struggle? Mm. And then I must remind myself, but I, I think I turned out okay. <laughs> I think she's going to be okay. So Lerato always, uh, my daughter always... Um, pushes us and asks, like, why are you with the students mm. so much? Why aren't you around? And we have to mm. tell her. Um, and there's always that balance between how much you protect your children from the inequality and the injustice in the world 
because they are young and they don't need that mm. heavy burden? Mm. And how much do you actually engage them when they ask you a difficult question about what's going on or where you've been? So it was wonderful to come back. Always challenging, though. I mean, you said so much that I want to dig into. I'd love to start with, with your trip to Gaza. And, I mean, we just saw the headlines and yeah. we saw SA Olympian kidnapped <laughs> in Israel. That's what we see. and. Yeah. You know, there's this shock, horror, confusion, but yeah. I'd love to get the backstory. Where, where does this idea first come into your head? Do people contact you? Do yeah. you contact them? What, how did this all begin? So, um, there was an idea that the flotilla, freedom flotillas have been around for a while. Uh, the, the ones that many people would remember, often we remember the most violent things. So, um, there was a Turkish boat. Uh, in 2010 mm. with a couple of hundred people on board that the Israeli occupation forces Intercepted and 10 people died, many, many, over 50 people injured in that interaction, uh, a very big show of force of Israel uh, insisting that they were not going to let anyone uh, send humanitarian aid. This was not an armed mission. Um, and so there have been freedom flotillas for many years. Uh, the idea came about that it would be good in particular because women uh, in uh, oppressed places but also – well, Every place is an oppressed place for a woman, but let's say occupied Gaza is an extreme form of that, that it would be very good to focus on the everyday resistance that women provide uh, to keep occupied Palestine alive mm. under very trying circumstances. And so the idea was to uh, to gather a group of women. We were actually meant to go with two boats, so a group of about 25 women, um, to sail peacefully, not even with humanitarian aid or money, okay. just with a message of solidarity, hope, and hopefully peace mm. uh, in a very war-torn area. Um, then there are a number of... Um, Country-based campaigns that raised funds that had various selection processes because, of course, many, many women would have wanted to go Mm. themselves. But the feeling was that we didn't want to necessarily have a very big mission, that we wanted a smaller mission, which is easier to control, easier to determine what happens when you actually confront this military force. Do a lot of people want to go? You said many women want to go. I'm, well, I'm, I'm surprised that there's so. a lot of people well, who I imagine so. I, would I mean, risk their own health and safety to get on a boat and, and okay. sail. Okay, maybe not many hundreds, but there were certainly, because only one boat left, yeah. uh, it was an extreme situation where we had very committed women who were not able to attend one or, or to go on the, mm. on the one boat that remained. The woman who I think the most about is um, a woman from Turkey who was on the Turkish boat whose husband was killed and died in her arms. She was wanting to make a return the journey. The 2010 boat. The 2010 boat. So if that isn't brave for you, this is a woman who's faced the, the worst of the flotilla um, experiences. She was willing to get back on that boat. That's how committed some people are. Yeah. People see that this injustice is seven, 70 plus years old. It hasn't had an opportunity. We've had a reset button in 1994. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't perfect, but it allowed for some opening of space mm. uh, and a different kind of time, even as it feels today as I think about what's going on at Fitz and other um, Fitz University and other campuses, it feels like we are going back in time in a way. Uh, people are very aware that the Palestinian situation is dire and has been for a long time. And so they may be not hundreds of women, but they certainly were women I had to see cry and had to wave goodbye to when we set sail um, from Messina in Italy. Um, just in me questioning the number of people willing to go, I, I know we mean to belittle the cause. I, I think I'm just questioning that out of respect for how brave it is to get to, to get on this on. boat and face the the soldiers and whatever may come yeah 
um, head on. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, has this, has the Israel Palestine cause always been something that's, that's very personal? It has. Do you been. have any idea? If you could speak a bit about why that's so, so personal. So, I mean, I grew from. up on, in the Cape Flats, uh, in Cape Town and, um, the Cape Town community, I mean, this has changed because of the conditions of the world, 9-11 and a whole range of other things. But the Cape Town community is always Christian, Muslim, have managed to live together in my uh, small mm-hmm. experience uh, better than they have in, in recent years. Yeah. And I had a coach, in fact, um, uh, by the name of Ishmael Collier. He's now passed because of cancer, but he ran my father. It's a crazy story. My father coached him when he was a coach. He then ran an Olympic 200-meter qualifying time. Wow. But um, there was boycott against South Africa and apartheid South Africa at that point. And he was offered the possibility to go. It was in the period where some in the mm. apartheid state were allowing some window dressing. Mm. He was very clear he wasn't going to go. He then was a maths and phys ed teacher at the public high school I went to. Wow. Uh, he coached me. I mean, I went to the Olympics largely because of, of uh, the guidance and technical skill that he was able to, um, to share with me. Mm. He was also... a like he he supported the Palestinian cause for many years, and so all our anti-apartheid understanding was always linked to this other cause uh, for me. And also then post-apartheid, um, obviously there are a number of people who are still looking to that place, saying yeah. we ca- it cannot be that there's a there's an apartheid uh, legalized apartheid situation uh, still existing. So for me, it's from when I've been young, I've been exposed to pro-Palestinian. Um, and anti-occupation uh, rallies and readings and conversations. So it kind of made sense when when I was called and asked if I'd like to apply. Mm. There was an, there was a fairly open process in the sense that people, well maybe not open, but people a number of women in South Africa were asked to apply okay. if they were willing to go on this. And then there were a couple who did, and there was a selection process, and that obviously had to do with availability, who applied, and who people who the broader committee felt would be uh, important to be on this uh, journey yeah. I think for me I also went through a phase because in my in my upbringing uh, my family was so involved in the anti-apartheid movement my father was arrested on hunger strike we were dragged to meetings at some point in my life I was really angry about that so when I went to university to UWC in 1995 um, I wanted to do anything but fight for Fight against the party to injustice. So I played sports. So my first university experience was I was one of those. You were like, what's not political? Sports. Yeah. <laughs> Let me but, try that. But of course, my political activism came through sport because I learned my politics through sport. But what I really decided was, yeah. okay, I want to play beach volleyball. Okay. And volleyball. And I want to travel the world because I would never be able to afford to do that. I come from a working class family. Mm. So I want to play. I want to try and play internationally. Um, and I mean, it's not true that I wasn't, comp- I wasn't politically active in the sense of, uh, very organized things or on the student representative council. Okay. What I did do through sport was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm an out, um, lesbian woman. So for me, I, uh, I was using the platform to continue to talk and in particular around women's issues and mm. sexuality issues, um, and, and struggles. And so, but I was, I, I was, 
tired and angry at that point at my parents uh, for maybe not paying enough attention, yeah. for dragging me to too many meetings. And I see myself doing that to my own mm -hmm. child now. But then um, I started getting more involved as I exited uh, international sport. Uh, so I was in the 2004 Olympic Games. We tried at the Olympics in our technical briefing to challenge some of the sexist rules mm. around the size of one's bikini not being on the side larger than five centimeters. This is the way that the corporatization and the sexism mm. of a very sexy sport, beach volleyball, uh, was imposed on us. And so we tried to, in a small way, resist this and try to critique it. Um, I then played for another two years and was very close to qualifying for Beijing when I decided that this was actually not the terrain where I could change the world or fight against injustice because it was so tied up in a kind of corporate uh the worst kind of internationalists understanding people playing for their home countries but living in another place because they want to get away from their home mm. countries as opposed to an opportunity to meet different people yeah. and hear about what's going on in the world. So when I retired from international sport, I, I trained as a teacher at UWC. So I wanted to go back into education and I did some sport education things and I learned about the um, – um, CETA system, Sector Education Authority. I did some sport education and then uh, I landed up at WITS. Um, and at WITS, my partner is an academic there and they needed someone to help organize a critical theory program. I then started, because, kind of haphazardly it worked out. I, I never studied project management, but I studied organizing. I'm, I can organize things. There we go. I helped organize myself uh, to get to the Olympics because our national federation didn't fund us as well as they should. Isn't that the story of most Olympic sports? But then um, getting getting into a university context where critical theory was being discussed. What is critical theory? So critical theory, many people have different understandings okay. of it, but my understanding our is… Our working definition My for, working for definition hour, is, yes. what are the critical questions of our time okay. and how, where do we go to to try and figure out these difficult questions? And that, okay. that's really broad. It's right? broad so enough it to broad. accommodate different… So for me, I was, I was with academics who were… I was, we were running an annual uh, summer school program for PhD students and staff, academic staff, around a broad question. So 10 days of conversation and trying to also rethink what con critical conversation is outside of – inside of the university and trying not to be bound by the university rules mm -hmm. around you have a professor – the professor professes to you and then you become one like the professors. Right. So um, <laughs> anyway, that was a, a, a hell of a learning experience. And yeah. I did start to both be drawn into the university as well as remain critical of it. Um, I did a part-time master's as a result because I was staff. I could go and do a part-time master's in education. And there I was really um, interested in uh, – I went to the 80th birthday party of an educationalist called Anne Hope. She's now passed last year or this year – no, last year. Um, and she told the story of how in 1972 she was approached by the South African Student Organization, the Black Consciousness Movement, because she'd worked and studied with Paulo Freire. And people had been reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed under the table because it was banned at that time. She was then approached by Steve Pico, Bonnie Pitiana, Johnny Issel, Mampela Rampele and others to train the Sasso leadership um, in radical pedagogies, in Paulo Freirean methods, in this idea of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And she then for a week at a time for six months met the top national leadership of the South African Student Organization 
not teaching them in, in Freirian spirit, engaging yeah. with them around how to develop a literacy campaign. I mean, so, these are a lot of the black consciousness leaders that we look to now. And, and they were students at the time. And Revere now and, and Colt now. And so when I heard that, she had I an opportunity like, to work with them. Why have, have we not heard more about that mm. process? I mm. mean, we all know that those students were doing much more than just being university students yeah. and they were really connected to community. Mm. So they went to a white liberal in the, in, in the black consciousness sense. Um, in 1972, so Biko's already written the critique of white liberals. Yeah. They went to her and they said, we need you to help us with this. And they were in a process and I wanted to look more closely at that process. That, so that was my master's research. I look at the role of radical pedagogy and education in the formation of the South African student organization. Um, and then I do well at that, surprisingly to myself, and I get a scholarship, government scholarship to do a PhD also in education. I originally start want to look at, uh, because of my critique of universities and even the schooling system, I want to look at the idea of teachers as intellectuals rather than functionaries of a curriculum, be it your own curriculum at the university or a government curriculum in a high school. And I was in Cape Town when the Roads Must Fall happened, and when it did happen, I immediately went to UCT, and when I sat there with those young people, I'm also young, but they're younger than me, um, I got a sense that this was a really important moment. I got on the phone with my supervisor, and I said, I've already collected some data with teachers who mm. taught under apartheid, but I think this question of who is an intellectual is a really important one, and I think it's an even harder one to engage when you think about students who haven't qualified anything yet. They're undergraduates, some of them, mm. and here they are asking critical questions about the state of university and, in fact, about the state of society. So this is how I end up being a PhD student now, and this is how I end up in the middle of, of Fees Must Fall because I'm studying the Roads Must Fall movement and looking at students, black students as intellectuals and the role that they play in questioning society, etc. So I land myself kind of haphazardly in the middle of what's going on at the moment. And I think as a result of that, and also because students have insisted that professing is not the only answer, mm. that we need uh, more creative ways of understanding education, especially coming from this place that is much more uh, historically around the oral and around people doing things collectively, yeah. that we need to rethink what universities and education is for. And so um, I then get start. As with other students, we get start, we get asked to be on panels and give lectures and things that would have been impossible to imagine two years ago. Yeah. But academics understand that actually maybe these, these youngsters have something. They've got something to say. Yeah. So because of that, I think there is then a trajectory from a sports profile into a more mm. activist profile into a kind of a critical engaged citizen. And I thought, I think that's why they selected me to go. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful, even as I'm still trying to recover from the trip, eternally grateful for the opportunity to represent South Africa in a different way, uh, but also to sit in conversation and through struggle because that boat was a struggle for me. I mean, I like to have my feet on the ground and to be How long on were you boat. on the boat? We were on the boat for nine days. What is that experience like for you? For me, physically and, and emotionally? So physically and emotionally, besides even the interception and the prison yeah, and the whole Israeli that, thing, yeah. for me, that was, I mean, it was in some ways harder than the Olympics um, because there's a, there's a way that you can, um, when you find something you enjoy and you become a, a bit of a specialist or expert in mm. it, you really enjoy it, you can push yourself to, to particular limits 
in relation to that thing. And you can engage the emotional, the psycho- psychological. I mean, you have that opportunity in anything you do, art, sport, music, mm-hmm. whatever you want to do. Um, and so getting on the boat for me was I don't like to be out of control in that way. I deal with stress by actively – I'm an activist – by actively being involved and then obviously thinking about it and reflecting on it. Mm-hmm. In this situation, I was – at the mercy of, I know that's a, that's a strong phrase to use, oh, but it felt like I was at the mercy of a captain and two very young crew members and the sea and the weather and this very small, not very fancy boat um, for a very long time leading up to what was meant to be a very and going to be quite a difficult situation. And an unknown sort of event. So, unknown, unknown, unknown. I mean, I got… Jeez. I think what was my first real panic attack mm. uh, on the second day. So we were all fairly seasick for the first three days. Anyone who sailed knows that a, a yacht is very rocky. And apparently, only to find out afterwards from the captain, the Mediterranean is understood as this beautiful flat place. But because it's mostly landlocked, the waves are very choppy because there's no – it's not like when you're in the, in the oh, ocean, you okay. have these long waves. Oh, I understand. So you are rocking all the time. So people were really sick. And we had some women on the boat who were over 70, and some of them were really struggling. Well, one was really struggling. The other one was better than all of us. So <laughs> maybe that's not a, a, a fear. The age issue is not, not necessarily the issue. But it was challenging because at, uh, on the second day, I woke up in the dark to a loud bang uh, with the captain jumping from the dead of sleep uh, running outside in our underwear because something in our rigging had snapped in a, in a little squall storm. A wire suspension had literally snapped. And when I looked outside, there were, ju- there were sheets of rain in the darkness with the crew screaming at one another outside on this boat. And I was just, for the first time in my life, I was, I'm actually glad I don't have to go out there. <laughs> She said, go back to your rooms, everyone, because we were all standing there like You're petrified. Like, I guess we should help. But you I don't, went you back don't. to my room and I sat there and I was like, okay, yeah, I really need to trust yeah. that either we're going to die in this situation. I don't know what's going on and knowing is not going to actually make it better. I'm just going to sit here. Mm. And I really had to breathe and think and try to calm myself down in that moment. So there were many moments on that trip that were... Were difficult and and difficult and expanding in interesting ways. What is? How do you center yourself in a in a situation like that? What what what? If you if you can remember, what was the thing that you you came back to? Was it perhaps the purpose for the trip? Is it something else? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that yeah. I kept the entire time, um, because we knew where we were going and we knew that the potential was high that we wouldn't get there, I kept taking things back to the Palestinian woman that we were doing this in solidarity with. And so in that moment, I was like, this is frightful, but in an occupied space where you are bombed regularly and you have checkpoints, this is, this is okay. You know, we're in, the, we're in the sea, we have life jackets, we have a trained crew, I can swim. Okay, people, a lot of people know that we're out here. And you chose to be there, if nothing else, this is voluntary. And right? so the, the, the kind of physical yeah. thing that I, besides... Um, Choking down some rescue remedy, I I try to just center my breathing. That's something uh, post uh, sport that I've been mm. engaging with through, you know, just being in difficult situations and trying to center myself. So I, I mean, I it, the situation also normalized after about an hour and a half, where okay. they figured out what was going on. Um, so I mean, the people have to at the moment. 
the conversations with students around how they deal with the trauma mm. that they're dealing with. Many people do different kinds of things, but when you're in a boat, on a boat, in the middle of nowhere, in the dark, in the rain, with something broken, um, you can't go anywhere. So that I think that was the that's what made it what amplified mm. uh, the situation for me. And that was true for the full nine days. There were two or three other occasions. I won't bore your listeners, but where I was like, <laughs> I was really like, what am I doing? I really had to breathe and remind myself. The the other interesting thing was that because it was a nine-day journey mm. and we had a thousand nautical miles to do, no matter how sick or scared we felt, if one person had to lose it and go like, I can't, it would have jeopardized the entire thing uh, because there was no way to helicopter someone off. Mm. You, it would mean you would have to take this entire mission. And that was a hell of a stress for I suppose um, for everyone, um, I, I was quite clear. I can be quite stubborn, harachat as they would call it in Cape Town, where there was no way I was going to come back. Like if there was going to be a shock and we were sinking, that's my worst nightmare. I would be there. I wasn't going to say bring us home. That would have just been the worst possible. That would have been worse than sinking. The idea of committing to we this thing. We decided to turn around. No, because yeah. we were getting satellite messages from Gaza. Yeah. Uh, from women and children who were waiting. People were on the beach when we were supposed That's to right. arrive. Not hundreds, thousands of people. Jeez. We were, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So there were many, mo- many, many moments on that boat um, that pushed us. I mean, the some of the most fantastic moments for me were the conversations with the other women on board. Um, everyone on that um, that boat is an activist, is engaged in their context, but also seeking out solidarity efforts. And I think there's a big lesson in that for all of us. I mean, we can get so tied up in our own little problems. Um, Everyone's got challenges regardless of race, class, Mm. gender. But if we don't look up from that to see where, uh, how would one put this, where where the most extreme forms of oppression exist in our society and in the world, we can actually miss a lot of what reality is. We can get caught up in our own stuff. And so the women on those, on that boat were involved in intense struggles in, I mean, we had a member of parliament from Algeria and New Zealand, a Maori woman from New Zealand, a member of parliament who had to flee Chile in the 70s uh, and was now a member of parliament in Sweden. Uh, we had our, our, um, our kind of team leader, is a 70-year-old retired lieutenant general from the U.S. Army, like a really high-up army person who, who are around the Iraq war said, I'm not going to do this, and then now is a peace activist. Marie oh. um, Maguire is a Nobel laureate uh, who lost family in the um, Northern Ireland Island um, struggles that have been happening. Uh, so just amazing, amazing people, women, uh, willing to to do this thing. I mean, two people on the boat couldn't even swim. I don't know if I would consider doing a mission like that's how uh, committed. how committed people are, not only to their own struggles yeah. but to to solidarity. So I mean, I felt I felt like it was it was a moving classroom for me in a in a very interesting way. Okay. I just want to quickly play the audio of the of the sort of recording that you sent mm-hmm. back. My name is Lee Ann Naidu from South Africa. If you're seeing this video, uh, we've been intercepted and kidnapped by the Israeli occupation forces. I want to put an appeal to all my comrades, brothers, sisters, family in South Africa to put pressure on the South African government 
to insist that they release me as soon as possible. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was recorded the day before we left uh, because the flotilla movement has has experience of different kinds of interceptions and also i mean one of the things that was interesting besides the the kind of absolute military might of the israeli occupation forces there's also a um a very uh, well-oiled repressive machinery around communication and so we understood that if we were going to be intercepted, we were going to go uh, offline. They were going to intercept everything. Yeah. Uh, they were going to stop our satellite transmissions. Mm. They were going to um, take away our phones, our cameras, anything that could record and communicate, even after the fact mm. what we had gone through was not going to be with us. And so it was under that um, under that context that we realized we needed to pre-record something and leave that in the safety of our lawyers and other people's yeah. hands for the moment that uh, we were intercepted. Um, so, I mean, it's weird to listen to it now because the moment that I recorded it, we hadn't even set, our, we hadn't even set foot on the boat yet. So my voice even sounds kind of not distressed <laughs> like, in a way. Uh, but I mean, yeah. even though the message is distressing, it was uh, when I was recording it, I had no um, no experience of, of why it was so necessary, and yeah. I was really glad that I did in the moment that, you know, before they we, – we reached the 100-mile mark, 100-mile from Gaza mark um, on the Wednesday morning around 6 a.m. sunrise. And that meant that 100 nautical miles in our boat takes about 20 hours. Okay. So it's close, but it's not super close. Um, I mean – by mid-morning, they'd cut off everything. We hadn't even seen any naval ships or anything, and we were realizing, actually, they've jammed us. The Al Jazeera people who'd been reporting live and mm. sending package feeds every day mm. were like, no, there's something going on here. Mm. We've been, uh, the, it's been intercepted. Um, and we were confident. We became more and more confident as we were counting down these miles. We were even below 50 miles, we were like, oh, maybe we're going to make it. Maybe they're just cutting off our communication, but they're actually going to let us go through. Mm. And then you see something on the horizon, and the captain takes the binoculars and looks, and okay, they are here. Not, I mean, we are a 15-meter long yacht with 13 people on board. Mm. The, we've, we see a naval vessel. And then another one flanking us on either side and then one behind us quite far away. So, I mean, if you didn't want to see it, you could say, no, it's not there. I'm not seeing it. But, of course, we were all very interested. Um, and then the radio starts going. And we, because we were very clear that we were going to be a peaceful mission, we were not going to confront other than saying that we're going to Gaza. Mm. Uh, we were not going to be confrontational because uh, from previous stories – uh, very small confrontations can explode, partly because people are so fear, the Israeli soldiers are so fearful, fearful of us and of people that have been painted as terrorists. Mm. Anyone who critiques Israel is problematic and needs to be restrained, uh, in, in, I imagine in their training. Uh, and many of them, the average age was like 20, 21. It was oh. quite shocking to me, uh, that this was the age of the soldiers who eventually boarded us. So, you know, we got close to like 40 nautical miles and this radio conversation now starts going between 
in the end there were three people from the Israeli occupation forces. As as we reached the level of fr- frustrating the one, then this more senior person came and a more senior person. Our captain. So was, what is the conversation? You say so, you're frustrating them. What is the? Are well, they asking you to turn around? Are they no, asking the your first, business? The yeah. conversation is Zaytuna. Zaytuna, come in. Which is the name uh, of your book? Zaytuna Olivia. Yeah. yeah, Zaytuna means olive in um, Arabic. Uh, we would like to inform you, I mean, these are not the exact words, but oh, we'd yeah. like to inform you that you are entering uh, a security zone, which okay. was not true because we were in international waters. Okay. And we know this because we've talked about it's it. It's the self-declared security yeah, zone. Yeah, it's the self-declared. <laughs> uh, we, you are on a course to uh, an area that is restricted. We apo- appeal to you to please alter your course to X, Y, Z. And then, of course, our captain goes... Thank you so much for your communication, but we are on a course to Gaza to take a message of peace and solidarity and hope uh, to the women especially and also children of mm. occupied Gaza. And it goes back and forth like this. Uh, what we would um, recommend is that you drive your boat straight to Ashdod Port. We will, we will um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, usher you. Uh, to the port. So there are naval boats on either side, basically. Basically, we'll take you in, but you can, or, you can drive yeah. your own boat. We won't even get on board, wow. which, to which we're like, no, we're not that doing that. That sounds generous. Generous. <laughs> then they're like, oh, you can get onto our boats and we can drive you much quickly. More, I mean, it was the more, whole range. more generous. Yes. The whole, we'll give you a lift. So the, I mean, it's interesting you say generous because my, one of the experiences that I didn't expect, I expected to feel affronted by the military might, yeah. which I was, because they released these Zodiac boats that look like something from Star Wars. They're a little bit smaller than our yacht, mm. but they have uh, 16 soldiers on board. Uh, they have all these tiered seats like in a stadium, guns, lasers, and they come at you fast. They're like rubber ducky, like advanced mm. rubber duckies. So those two come at us, and you know immediately – this Look, we there's nothing we can do here. We can't outrun you. We don't want to outrun you. We don't want to engage you mm. in this way. So you do have that brute military force that sets up the David and the more than David and Goliath situation mm. in Israel Palestine. But the thing, the the so-called genero did you say generosity? The so-called generosity of this brutal system is what was the most harrowing for me. So the generosity of giving you all these options yeah. to not do what you are coming to do. Yeah. Uh, the One of the hardest moments for me was when so when we were boarded by four women soldiers and four men soldiers. Um, they We were all sitting above deck because we didn't want to scare them mm. and be underneath or, or in different places. Mm. So we were on deck. They could clearly see we were not going to challenge them. A very young sailor soldier went and stood with our captain. And they managed to figure out how they were going to steer. Um, and then what happens is you see the Zodiac come storming towards you again. And now they're starting to pass things. And they're passing water and they're passing what looks like a picnic. Uh, you know, these cooler boxes with the zip. Yes. I'm like, what's going on here? And we had agreed that only our captain and our team leader would speak. Okay. Um, that we would be uh, peaceful and silent, which is obviously very hard for a number of the women on board because these are outspoken activists. What then happens is that the water gets offered to people and you've mm. been sitting now in the blazing sun. So someone takes a bottle of water and then the picnic basket comes with chocolate mousse and hummus and a whole lot of things. And at, and then one of the sailors 
who's a young woman who supports the cause but is not necessarily an activist, mm. uh, starts making herself a – and at that moment I say, listen, I don't eat Israeli's goods at home. I support BDS. I'm not about to eat your food. Um, and then I'm quiet again because I, 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 at that, I could not, the generosity, that kind of generosity is a fake generosity. So that was the first moment of generosity in inverted commas, um, that I experienced then. Mm. But when we get, when we got into the port and even into the prison system, there is again that fake generosity. Um, that I'm sure is not afforded to everyone in the same way because well, certainly, certainly we are high profile and a lot of people were watching what was happening. Um, but even so, the generosity that was afforded us, uh, it's not confusing as much as it is maybe disgusting. I don't know how to explain yeah. it to you. So we get – when we are, uh, arrive at this port, mm. it's midnight. We've been on the boat for seven hours with these soldiers. We are unable to move or to do what we want. They've searched all our bags. Mm. So that is a is not about a gun, but it is about the thing we know in South Africa very well, the restriction of freedom, of yeah. movement, of the ability to speak about what you what you're going through, of the ability to share what you're going through through images and other other kinds of um, whatever's allowed technologically now. So Many people have asked, so did they treat you well? Were they screaming at you? No, they were not screaming at us. Uh, so if you were to take that out of context, yeah, on the you surface, were treated well. Yeah, it was great. We had a picnic. That was great. But So the same, a similar thing can be said about the experience of being processed uh, through the firstly Navy, then handed over to the military with the police there, as well as the, uh, what do you call them, immigration police mm. and system. And... The thing, the thing that they, I know we don't have a lot of time, but the, the, the searching of your bags continually, the strip searching of your person continually, even though in very like kind ways, like please stand here, please do this. The, um, what starts out as an interview, but then you very quickly realize this is a form of interrogation and mm -hmm. uh, manipulation to try and get us to sign. Uh, a deportation order immediately so that we can be taken out of the country. Mm. Um, that, for me, that was more violent in a way. And that, that, it, it reminds me, even as everyone is shouting about the student violence and the police retaliation, clip hoy, rubber bullets, whatever, what we often forget is that universities are violent places for black, poor, Bodies and people. Um, South Africa is a violent place, not only physically, politically, economically, socially. It's, there's, there's, there are all these forms of violence that one can easily just coat over to, to, and hierarchize violence against person, which is terrible, violence against property, yeah. which is also in some ways terrible, uh, over the kind of daily mundane. So I really got a sense that even as we were being treated well, the front of continually being so I got strip searched in the space of 36 hours three times. I had to put my bag through metal detectives, have people pull my panties and everything out in front of people mm. four times. Every time you arrive at a different arm of the state, yeah. they want to recheck you and they do this. And, and that is part of the dehumanization. The fact that you, you are um, continually... Uh, stopped from 
existing in a way that you want to, but then also you continually get treated in a manner that's on the one hand kind with kind words and on the other hand just like inhumane. Um, so that was surprising for me because I thought it was going to be more that the people were going to be there with guns yeah, and going to shout it. Yeah, yeah, literal. And I was almost more prepared for that. Yeah. Um, so the another moment that was really revealing for me was uh, besides some of the women not being able to swim, Two of the women, uh, Dr. Fazia from Malaysia and the member of parliament, um, Samira from Algeria, mm. both do not have consular representation or diplomatic ties with Israel. So that means they go there knowing that the government can't help them. Will not help or try to negotiate. Right? So I go there knowing that we have representation, but we have a critical, at least policy stance towards in Israel. In theory. Yeah, in theory. Uh, but my assumption is that my government will be there. Um, there's a moment on the second day. So we arrive at the prison at like two in the morning and we process throughout the night. There's another form of like confusing you is that I think I slept. I thought going to prison, I'm going to be able to sleep a little bit properly if without not, everything going else. up and down. No, they wake you up. I saw a social worker. They bring you back. Two medical doctors. They bring you back. And, and so it is again this thing of, but we're checking your blood pressure. Mm. We're asking you questions about your family as a social worker. Like, no, why are you doing this to me? Why am I in prison? Yeah. I didn't want to come here. Don't give me a doctor. Give me my fucking phone call, which they never did. They kept telling us, I mean, in this, from watching the movies and knowing law, everybody gets a phone call. No matter how bad you are, no matter how righteous you think you're being, you get a fucking phone call. Yeah. They didn't give us a phone call. So my family didn't hear from me. Jeez. And then, so we go through the night of being woken up and taken to different places, mm. fingerprinted, you name it, photographed. And then the, um, the consular, the consular representatives start coming. And so one by one, people get the Spanish photographer gets called to go and meet her ambassador, mm. the American, the New Zealander, the Chilean ambassador for someone who is not even in Chile anymore comes with the Swedish, the Norwegian. Yeah. They're all there. Samira, um, myself, Dr. Fozia, Samira and Dr. Fozia are the only two in hijab, full hijab. Hijabs. We don't go anywhere because our representative, they, they don't have one. Mm-hmm. We have one in theory who hasn't pitched up. They then, we eventually get to a point where we can now speak to our lawyers, uh, the Israeli lawyers who um, work with Gabby Lasky, who's helped with Fulotilla missions before. Mm-hmm. We then get taken to the open area where the consular people come. There are two picnic um, benches there, and we see our fellow comrades, participants, sitting at the benches with their consular representatives. Don't they take the Algerian, the South African, and the Malaysian uh, past the benches, open up a what is an outdoor cell so we can see everybody doing their thing, but we are locked up in that cell. And we're going, but we with them, those ones that are sitting there. Why are you locking us up? Just keep quiet and, and in wait. In view of them. That's... In view of them. And so I say to my, my comrades, say, mm. especially... Samira from Algeria, she says something very poignant at that moment. She says, at least we are in Palestine, in the sense that we are in Palestine and we are in the position that Palestinians are in, or how they are treated um, kind of more explicitly, because it was clear that it was the brown people, the Muslim people, 
the Africans who were being locked up while mm. the Spanish and the Americans mm. and the New Zealanders and the Australians mm. were able to sit outside. Yeah. So there's all these – and, okay, someone can say, listen, you, you misreading, you overreading, maybe. But, look, when we questioned, we even asked our lawyers, can they not let us out? The lawyers asked them and they're like, no. So someone makes a decision, someone wearing a badge over you – in a manner that is, uh, seems to be mm. fairly unfair and inhumane. Um, and of course, nothing compared to what Palestinians go through. Oh, so, I mean, I'm reflecting this to try and open up some of the questions yeah. around mobility, around dehumanization, around what happens when you separate people out in the way that mm. they have over the Israel mm. apartheid. Um, yeah, so it was really surprising to me to not have representation. I mean, they even took us in front of a judge. They woke us up for the last time before they moved us to the next detention center, which was at the airport. Um, they took us to a judge where we had this hearing, uh, what was a bail hearing, to see whether they would release us mm. into Israel. We'd never wanted to go to Israel, so I wasn't too sad that they uh, turned down the bail application. But, I mean, it was 36 hours of... Processing, strip searching, um, some relief to be on land, oh, and then, and then just like frustration around not being able to phone people, um, and also not knowing because you never know exactly what's going on, and there was continual pressure to get us to sign so that they could get rid of us mm. quicker. Lots of pressure around saying we have a holiday coming up in four days. If you don't sign that thing, oh, you're going to stay for 10 days. And so we had to have, have discussions about what more can we do. We'd resisted signing and leaving immediately. Uh, they'd had to process us, therefore, uh, as illegal. Um, so we made the decision that actually we will, we'd all sign together. We made them change the, the document to ensure that everyone got uh, sent home. To where, to where they wanted to go as opposed to just dropped in Istanbul or something. To where they decided. Yeah, yeah, can. exactly. So we, once we decided that, um, things became, uh, I started seeing the light, like actually we're going to be out of the situation. Yeah. Um, my flight was delayed for an hour, so I had to sit after the last strip, strip searches and searches of our baggage. I had to sit in a like a police van thing for about an hour locked up. Um, and in that moment, the guy who was driving me, we had a short engagement about Israel and Palestine and what was happening. And we, at the end of it, agreed um, that the military and arms was not the way to, to figure out a peaceful solution. So this was even from an Israeli. Wow. Uh, I mean, the, the opinions differ, obviously. Mm. Um, but even on the boat, at least one or two of the soldiers made the point that they're just doing their job. You got a sense that I mean they are a they are a people who force their like the apartheid government did, force their young men and women yeah. into an army that is overseeing an occupation, mm. which means a very violent situation, racist situation. Um and that must seriously do some damage to some young people out there. I can imagine. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're back home. Yeah. Um and as you said earlier, knee deep into the fees must fall situation. Wow. I mean, we've only got about 10 minutes, but I'd love to dig into some of your yeah. thoughts on that. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you gave the, the, the Ruth first lecture. I think it was about six weeks ago, sometime in August. Yeah. Um, and you had such, such potent sort of comments and insight into the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. And there are 
just about two insights that I'd love to touch on. Um, the first is, is, is you describe a disconnect between the, the student activists now and the anti-apartheid activists of sort of prior generations, the older, the older activists. Mm-hmm. And this disconnect is one where students are, have been very clear that, that the, the status quo is, is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's, we need a different reality. And you've got older activists who are saying, We've, we've, we fought for liberation. We've achieved liberation. We are free. We have democracy. I can, a black person can stand up and go to the shops without showing a dompus. I can buy property if I want. And, and this sort of disconnect. And, and the, another reason why the disconnect is so important is because the older generation have a lot more structural power in terms of political power and so on. And a lot more to lose. And a lot more to lose. So I'm curious as to, what what do you think bridges this divide? What what is that thing, or who is that person, or what is that conversation mm. that enables that that divide to be to be bridged in some? Yo, way? if I could answer that question, <laughs> we would save so much heart. We wouldn't be wasting pay. time. No, here. but let me there, try. Yeah. No, I mean it's a good question. That yeah. for me, some people would say there's no bridges. We actually can't. Okay. The bridges that we've seen built in 1994 have been bridges to places we never agree to go. So I don't know if the metaphor of the bridge works. For me, it isn't a person. Uh, it has to be a process, and okay. it's not a one-off process. This is one thing we've learned, and what it's I've seen. It's not the inviso from last no, week. No, <laughs> and it's not also one transitional moment yeah. where we, we've arrived. We don't arrive. We never arrive. And that, that was something of the conversation I was having with other people on the boat, mm. was that, yes, we are post-apartheid, but... Um, Somehow we rested on our laurels a bit too much. And that was partly because people were demobilized uh, and partly because people were tired. Uh, I think there's a whole range of reasons and we have to do more critical thinking and engagement around that transitional moment. Um, but I think it is a process and it also what students have brought to the table is that the forms of representative democracy that we imagined were our savior then it's not. And so many communities and the student movement, with all its flaws, have been experimenting with a more participatory form of democracy. Mm. That, for me, points us in a particular direction that I would follow rather than simply, like our Minister of Higher Education, our President and others have been saying, we have fought for this vote and this system, and if you don't fit in here and you are not elected, then you Mm. are illegitimate and we don't listen to you. And that, for me, is... Is, is, is freezing us in a, in a moment that doesn't allow us to think creatively. And that's what I was trying to say in okay. the lecture that we actually, uh, we are misreading the time and the idea that liberation is here, that even democracy is here, uh, has to be up for question. And you describe and, that as a fantasy or an illusion that perhaps we need to do away, not perhaps that we need to do away with. We need to be more critical. Yeah. And we, the thing is that it also seems to me, um, and people might think this is unrelated, but it seems to me very related that we have a number of traumatized, fearful people. Young people now, we're doing the same thing to our young people that was done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We're doing the same thing to them now. But when I look at the older older generation, even those who have the experience of struggle, who are critical, who yeah. are social scientists even, um, it seems to me that they are fearful and potentially fearful of having to go back to that traumatic moment. Oh, of losing perhaps what they... Losing, losing what they've got. But I mean, I would imagine that 
anyone in the South African context would recognize that the status quo is a terrible one and that wouldn't want to make, I mean, okay, no, I've heard a number of people, trolls who are very happy with the status quo, who are even calling for the police to use live ammunition, oh, if you wonderful. can imagine it. Thank so you, Miss 24 commenters, yeah. we appreciate it. Let you. me, yeah, let me not be yeah. over. So the status quo is a mess up. Uh, it is true that there is a acknowledgement and a recognition for people who faced down apartheid police, who organized under difficult circumstances, who lived, in who lived in exile, who went into armed forces, all of those things. But that's not the end of the story. And we really need uh, what I was getting to and I got distracted was that we we have very vulnerable masculinities that are at the helm of a whole range of institutions from the military to our government, to our universities, to our student movements. They are everywhere. And the the women's voices, queer people's voices, poor people's voices have been, I mean, if you think about it, the intersectional debates that Rhodes Must Fall and others in the mm. Fees Must Fall movement, mm. or at least in the decolonial student movement, have been trying to engage, trying to bring a different kind of revolutionary actor and actors into the fall, that has been missing from this last Iteration, at least in the Witt situation. And for me, that's problematic. We really do need different kinds of voices. And we also need to, to deal with the fact that we have people who are fearful not only to lose their material things, which is, I mean, we know that people don't want to give up privilege yeah. because everyone wants to be comfortable. Mm. Um, but further than that, people are, are really scared of um, unleashing uh, the kind of uh, pent-up Law and order through policing have managed to maintain the divides. So the apartheid laws are gone, but we have these very strict divides. Mm. We have the middle class democratic South Africa and we have township life. And it's not that simple. I mean, I'm being, mm. we have a short amount of yeah, time. Got about three minutes of but the point is yeah. we cannot continue in this way. Okay. And students have said we are prepared to say that we're not going to allow this to happen. I think we need the older generation, and I've been seeing more and more of the older generation, especially as these scenes mm. that are reminiscent of the 80s and the 70s flash on people into people's minds. They are going, oh, no, this is not how we want to go okay. ahead. So for me, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, it's not a bridge, but it is potential for dialogue. And we really need to – I mean, our president has just announced a task team that has three peop three ministers from the security cluster on it. If that isn't an indication of the way government wants to solve problems and that we're on the wrong road, I don't know what is. The processes of task teams and commissions led by government, they don't work. We need participatory democracy. We yeah. need to listen to people, to students, to the average people who know what's going on and allow and make space and time for them to be able to be part of the conversation. Yeah, and I've probably got about three minutes before I, feel, I get forcibly removed from, okay. from my chair. And I want to ask you, my, my final question before we let you go is, is you, you, you ascribe a process where after we arrest the present and, and, and stop and acknowledge that this is, you know, cannot continue, we need to sort of step into the future and start, and start projecting and discussing potential futures. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that we shouldn't get stuck in a politics of shutdown and get stuck in the second phase. Definitely. So how do we make that transition of saying we've arrested the present, we've shut down? Yeah. How do we how do we start moving to stepping into the future? How how do we get that part right? <laughs> These are big questions. You're giving me three minutes. So the first thing is to recognize that there have been a number of attempts, at least at Wits, okay. and Wits is not the center of everything. It's yeah. only my experience. 
there's been um, at the university currently known as Rhodes and other places, mediation processes, dialogue processes that have happened. But what we often find is, this is my personal opinion, we often find that when we get close to a potential negotiation mm. spot, there is a space uh, where from the student side, not only from the student side, from both sides, big men want to step in oh, yeah. and steer the course in a different direction because their politics is one of big man politics. And when you have big man politics, even a solution, a democratic solution uh, reached through consensus becomes not appropriate. And so the claim from Fees Must Fall at Wits is that our vice-chancellor, they were negotiating and agreeing on something, and half an hour before they were going to come back from reporting back, it was live in the media. Yeah. And that was what broke down the process. In another way, on the other side, you get to a, a point and maybe a student leader decides, no, I want to do something else. And so the, these, so for me, the processes that allow, mm. if we keep representative democracy, which I think is a flawed, we need to be more creative than that. We need to clarify the processes of communication between those elected leaders and people, and we need to pronounce that. Time and energy must be spent on the process of feedback as opposed to um, secret meetings, yeah. which is where most negotiations ca – so students have said they don't want secret meetings. We will need a new form, and maybe the Imbizo isn't the form, but it, is, it at least cracks open this idea that a few men – are going to sit in a room and resolve the issue. It's not going to happen. Leanne, thank you so much. I'm sorry to, to rush you in that conclusion. No I hope we get to have you on again. No Someone we can learn so much from, and I'm not afraid to say definitely a national treasure for, for all of us. Thank you. Leanne Naidu, thank you so much. It is the Daily Mavish on Cliff Central. We'll make sure to share the podcast, and you can download it as usual and share it far and wide. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.